Welcome to the Thy Neighbor Podcast, conversations with everyday people who are crushing it and making the world a more lovely place to inhabit. I am your host and occasional solo caster, Tracy Robbins King. If you are inspired by this episode and someone comes to mind as you listen, share this with that person. If you have benefited from the podcast, please like, rate, and subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, or Podbean. Your ratings, reviews, and shares make a difference and allow this podcast to reach more remarkable people like you. Shay Call and I met at BYU-Idaho while doing iTeam, an organization designed to welcome freshmen. Shay was a light then and is a light now. For several years, we were not in communication. But after she went through a divorce and I noticed the amount of self-realization she posted on her wall, we reconnected. She is such a blessing in my life and so many others. She's exceptionally talented at making things look aesthetically pleasing. She does have a degree in graphic design. She's a life coach, a singer. She has two songs on Spotify. She is a mother of one adorable son, and she's a photographer. So the talents go on and on beyond this, and she's always real and authentic. Go follow her on Instagram at Becoming You and Shay Call on Facebook. Shay, welcome to the Thy Neighbor podcast. You talk a lot about God's power in your life. How did he help you navigate your divorce? Well, Tracy, I love you. And I always love having a conversation with you. You're seriously one of my most favorite people ever to have a conversation with. So truly touched. Thank you. I'm serious. I, I just love your heart. I love all of you. How did God help me navigate my divorce? Um, you know, I grew up a member of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. And so my whole life, I was taught that there was a Heavenly Father who loved me, that I had a Savior, Jesus Christ, and that God had a plan for me. And I was taught to have faith. And I feel like faith just was a gift that I had. It was something that, it was just something that I had. It wasn't something that I really struggled with. Um, and when I went through my divorce, um, I, I found myself in a place where I felt like, wow, I see now because I'm in this place that we all have times in our lives where we come to a fork in the road and we either decide that we are going to believe what we've been taught our whole lives or we're not. And I just felt like a heightened like just that, that awareness was really strong for me. Like this is my fork in the road and what am I going to do with it? And I felt through that experience and that time. And even now still that if I wasn't going to choose to believe in a loving heavenly father who had a plan for me and a savior, Jesus Christ, who could heal me and help me through anything, I wasn't going to believe in it now when things were not so great. And at a time when my world felt like it was falling apart, then what was the point of it? If I couldn't actually use it when I needed it, then, then what was the point? And to me, that was such a strong, hopefully that's making sense, but I just like, to me, it was so powerful. Like, this is the very reason I've learned this. This is the very reason that I have been given this gift of the gospel of Jesus Christ is so that when things don't go as planned, I will have hope and I will be able to continue moving forward, trusting that he is there and that he does have a plan for me, even though the plan I thought we had wasn't the plan that was taking place. Um, I, I just feel like, um, you know, life is really hard for everyone in their own different ways, but everyone has hard. And um, to me, God and Jesus Christ give purpose to my pain. If, if I didn't know that they were there, um, if I didn't trust them, then why would I be willing to go through any of the hard things, whether it's my divorce or, or other things that I've been experiencing, you know? So, um, God has been my lifeline and my hope through all of this. And I feel like my faith has been strengthened because of all of this, 
But I also realize it's because I chose to let it do that. And that's something that we all have to do. And it's something that we have to do over and over and over again, sometimes many times throughout a day, but absolutely it does have to happen every single day. It's not something that you can just, you know, it doesn't have a shelf life. Faith doesn't have a shelf life. We have to re-choose every day to, to trust him. And you maybe just answered that, but what does choosing him look like for you? I think that sometimes I, I like that you asked that question because I feel like sometimes it's it's a little bit elusive and we don't really know what people mean when they say he helped them or how to choose them or whatever. I'm gonna say, like for me, at the the base level, that choosing God means choosing to believe what he asks me to believe. And so that starts in my thoughts and in my heart. So when I when I choose, you know, if he says you know, look unto me and every thought, doubt not, fear not. I have a choice to say, I'm going to look to him, which I guess comes back around to how do you choose him? How do you look to him? And for me, that means that I pray often. Um, I, you know, I'm really grateful for what I went through because I, I loved God my whole life, but I don't feel like I knew him the way that I do now. And, um, I pray in my heart all the time, all the time. I have a, I, I feel like we have an ongoing conversation, me and Heavenly Father. And it's not always complete sentences, but it's just that I have formed a habit of turning to him in my thoughts. So instead of always, I'm, I'm still alone in my thoughts sometimes for sure, but I've also, um, practiced like turning my thought into prayer and my feelings to prayer. So there's that's that's one choice for me. Choosing to look to him has also included doing the things that he's asked us to do that are very basic. Reading your scriptures. And I've absolutely have like times where I'm not so good at it and times where I'm doing good at it. And I get that sometimes that's a hard thing to want to do and it's a hard habit to stay great at. It feels like to me, but it's something that I've chosen to trust in and I've chosen to spend time doing. And I, I recently heard a talk by elder Maxwell and he said, some things can be learned, but they can't be taught. And I feel like your relationship with the scriptures is one of those things. I'm like, we're just, we're told to do a lot of things like pay your tithing, Please attend the temple, whatever that looks like for you. Say your prayers, like very simple, basic things we hear our whole lives. And I feel like when crisis hits, it's like, no, I need a miracle. Like I need big intervention here. And something that I've learned through this is like, that's not how it works. But if we have the faith and the willingness and the discipline to do those small and simple things, we're going to find him. And he's going to be there and he's going to show up for us. Um, most of the time, it's not some big, giant experience. It's just trusting those little, seemingly little things. And sometimes they can feel almost insignificant or like they're not going to do anything. But I know from my own experience that they do do things. This may be putting you on the spot, but I'm curious if you can illustrate uh, an example of a time that you were talking to God and how you saw him intervene? Hopefully this answers your question, but I, I thought of two experiences that I had within the first two or three years after being divorced. They were both on Sundays and I needed, and obviously on Sunday you go to church, right? Um, and not obviously, but on Sundays I usually go to church <laughs> And, um, I did not want to go both of these days and showing up, um, showing up as a single mom was really hard for me. It was really scary. Um, it felt really vulnerable. I felt ashamed. I felt embarrassed The the first Sunday that I went to church as a single mom, I just remember walking up the stairs and it just, I remember it feeling so hard to walk up the stairs and I was trying so hard not to cry. And I just was worried about what people were going to think of me and who was going to look at me and, you know, all that stuff. And 
I don't remember specifically, but I can guess that I probably was saying, Heavenly Father, please help me because I'm scared. And I think that like, obviously prayer is when we're in communion with him, when we're talking to him, but, but I feel like I was also communicating to him just by showing up that day. I know you want me to be here and it's also really hard and uncomfortable for me to be here, but I know you asked me to be here. So I'm going to come today. And so I went in me and my son and one of the hymns and sacrament meeting was guide us. Oh, thou great Jehovah. And I just remember that I knew that he knew and he was just saying, I see you and I didn't forget you at all. I'm here with you and I'm going to help you and guide you. And I love you. That's amazing. Do you know why we cry? Do I know why we cry? Yeah. I'm going to, I could spout off some things, but I'm curious why you would say we cry. (laughs) I was I actually think that crying is a way we release pressure in our bodies. I think it's a way that we properly, like it's a healthy way in my mind actually to release pent up emotion. But I don't actually always, I feel like sometimes I've been, I've been ashamed of my, my tears or I've been like, why am I always so soft about these things or whatever it may be. But there's this part of me that's, that's, as I've gotten older, I've been like, ah, oh, tears, tears. They just mean, it means something to us that it's a, it's an indicator of meaning. It's an indicator mm-hmm. of our hearts. But what do you think? I really like those things that you said. I do feel I've actually been practicing not apologizing for crying because it's a very common social thing that we do. And we feel like we need to be embarrassed or say that we're sorry for crying. But when I was in high school, I, one of my, (laughs) one of my friends just talked about how I was like the water faucet. I cry easy. And so over the years, I've just learned, like I cry easy and I actually feel like God gave us tears. So I don't think there's something that we need to be embarrassed about, even though we want to be sometimes. So I think that we cry because he gave us tears and they are, I do think they're a cleansing liquid, as I heard Kirk Duncan say once. I like what you said, that they show like, I guess the magnitude of how we feel about some things. I obviously connect them with emotions too, like when you're back in a place. Yeah. And I think that's true. I actually, there, I remember this, this just came back to me when I was taking anatomy and physiology back in 2006. I remember that your your tears release something called encephalins or something. I sorry, don't don't call me on this, guys. But and I remember that those were like a they were um they had they released like a dopamine. It's kind of like a dopamine mm. in regards that they're like they actually have like there is um a, a, a response that happens inside your body that like makes you feel better, mm. kind of a thing. I just thought that was interesting. That is cool. just, I'm following my curiosity, which sometimes leads us into places we didn't expect to go. So identity is something that you are passionate about and that has clearly been an important part of your life. Why is that? I like have big feelings for this. <laughs> when I experienced divorce, again, it was this time of figuring out what I believe and deciding what side of the line I was going to stand on and where I was going to place my trust. And mixed in with that, it was a time where I was reconciling that teaching that I am a child of God. And there's a part of you that when you go through something really painful, it's really easy to question yourself or to blame yourself or to shame yourself or to feel broken or embarrassed or whatever. And I felt all of those things. And I feel like during that time, as I'm bumping up against all these thoughts about myself and because of that experience, you're like this identity that I thought I had and I thought I was going to have was now taken away from me. And so I'm trying to figure out what does this mean about me? Who am I now? Or what is, and I, my testimony that I was a child of God became so much stronger during that time. Again, I know because I chose to keep turning to him and trying to hold to those truths 
through a time where so much felt uncertain and it became very clear for me, all of the issues that like the biggest problem that we have in this world is that people don't know who they are. And so they're wrestling with their identity. And so we show up sometimes trying to fit a certain identity again, because we want to be accepted. Everyone wants to be accepted and loved. And so if we don't know that we already are because we are God's child, then we're going to go and try to find it wherever it seems to be available. I love it. I feel like you you kind of cover this, but like what problems stem from not knowing who you are? Sure. I mean, I just think that, so on Sunday I went to a fireside and they talked about this whole recognizing that we are children of God and how sometimes we mix up our identity as children of God with other things that are going on in our lives. And the speaker said, I feel like that that is one of Satan's biggest tools. He wants us to replace our identity as children of God with anything else that he can find for us to replace it with. And so he was a psychologist and he said, I like to have my clients make a list where on one side they will write temporal and on the other side they will write eternal And I like them to write down the eternal truths about themselves that they can think of, and then the temporal truths about themselves that they can think of. He kind of listed off some of the eternal truths. He said, I think there's probably about five. I'm a child of God. I am loved. I have potential. I don't remember some of the others, but there was a a huge list. He said, it's not a big list. There's a few things that are eternally true about us. And we could write pages about things that are temporarily true about us. And if we're not careful, we define ourselves by our temporary circumstances and basically forget and let go of our identity as children of God. I think that when each of us put ourselves in that teaching that he gave, I can think of myself as alone and unwanted or broken. And I can say those things to myself. I am unwanted. I am broken. I am unloved. And when I choose to think those things about myself, the more I think them, the stronger my belief grows inside of me that those things are real for me. And then that governs the choices that I start making and how I show up as a person. And so any negative I am statement that you can come up with, we can all look at the thoughts that we had about ourselves, the feelings it created, and then the choices that we made because of those feelings. So while one person might struggle with feeling lonely, another person struggles with feeling like a failure and another person struggles with feeling unwanted, but all of those things cause emotions and then actions in our lives and they're never healthy or loving. We're not loving ourselves in those moments and we're not looking to God and remembering that regardless of this temporary experience or circumstance we're in, that there's more. So even I would say your identity as a singer, as a photographer, as a life coach, as a graphic designer, all those things can become part so wrapped up in our identity that when we may lose them, because what if for some reason you couldn't sing like you used to sing, or you didn't suddenly you, uh, you didn't have the, the same skills, or I don't know, you had a brain injury and something happened. We so identify with specific things that are even positive it can actually become something that takes us away from our our essential identity as a child of God. Yes. What impact has knowing who you are affected your life and your results? In my coaching practice, I like to teach something called the creation mindset model. And people that are into this kind of stuff have into like the the life coaching self-help stuff will have heard some variation of this, but essentially, and I I said it a couple minutes ago, but everything that we think leads to what we, the emotions that we feel. And that leads to what we do. And that leads to what we create in our lives. And so do I remember every day that I'm a daughter of God and that he loves me and everything's going to be okay? No, I don't. (laughs) It is a battle that I feel like is fought every day to be in that place of remembering like he's got, he's taking care of things. And probably more often than not, I forget that it's really hard to always live in a place where you're remembering it. I want to say that because just because I know things doesn't mean I always do them as well as I, as I want to. Right. But 
thinking those thoughts, remembering that he loves me, that I am his child, causes me to feel the emotion of hope and even peace and trust, excitement. I think there's a lot of emotions that can come from that. And that causes me, I would say the number one thing that that causes me to do is keep turning to him. And that in the form of prayer or in the form of showing up at church or opening my scriptures, even when I don't feel like it. And then that creates for me, like the day that I went to church, an experience, a situation was created where God could show up for me and reaffirm to me that he did know what I was going through and that he loved me. But do you know some of the results that it's created? Well, I think it's created more faith for me. Like I said, I I also feel very strongly that it has created more self-confidence for me. And that's a big result that I'm really grateful for is that I have become a lot more confident in who I am. My 20-year-old self was so afraid of being single and thought that it meant all these things about me. And now my 32-year-old self is like, this is great. Like this, like I just feel not that I don't want companionship because I do. And I think about it every day, (laughs) but I also feel I just have a lot more peace about myself than I did before. Um, I, another result I would say that I have received is, um, is that I have stepped into doing things that would have scared me before. So that sounds really vague again. Um, A few years ago, I decided that I was going to plan a fundraising event and I'd never done something like that before. But this belief has allowed me to feel comfortable to do things like that and to know that I can do them. I feel like God just offers us so much confidence. Most people... I think for having, it's more natural to forget your identity, your true identity in certain scenarios. You're more tested than others. So mm-hmm. how does identity tie into dating? In every way. I wish that I could have a giant megaphone that could reach across the plains of the earth to talk to single people. <laughs> about how knowing who they are is the very absolute best thing they could do for themselves when it comes to dating. Because the problem is everybody thinks it's about finding someone who loves you, finding someone who wants you, finding someone who thinks that you're great. And going back to what we talked about before that like using, sometimes we wrap our identity up in good things, but then when those good things aren't there, then it destroys us. Marriage is one of those things. I feel like very heavily in our culture that sometimes people feel like, well, what's my purpose if I'm not a wife and a mother of 10 kids? Why do I even exist? While being a wife and a mother is central to God's plan and what he promises to give each one of us at some point, I believe, and I have a testimony that we are first and foremost children of God. That's our first role. And um, a few months ago, well, in August, I went to education week and I went to a dating class and the teacher shared a story about, so he's an institute teacher up at Utah State. And he said that he had a student come into him And they were having a conversation and she said, you know, my number one dream was to be a wife and a mom. And I'm just so sad because I haven't been able to live that dream. And it was my number one dream. And he looked at her and said, that's not your number one dream. And he said, your number one dream is to be a disciple of Jesus Christ. And I am being literal when I tell you, I have thought of that story almost every single day since that day in August. It's been six or seven months since that happened. It was, even though I've been on this journey of strengthening my testimony of my value and and the reality that I am God's child and all these things, hearing it said in that way was like so powerful for me and just hit the nail right on the head. I'm like, you know what? We don't all get to do the things that we think we're going to do. And we don't all get to fit the roles or live in the roles that are part of God's plan. Not everybody gets to do that. And so 
being able to recognize that we came here to be disciples of Jesus Christ, that's what you came here to do. No matter what your sexual orientation is or your circumstance or your relationship status, like the first thing you are here to do is to be a disciple of Jesus Christ. And to me, that is so liberating and so joyful because he is joy and there is joy available to us right now, today, in our circumstance, even if we're alone and not dating anybody. And also, it's interesting how important it is not just to be loved, but to love and that you need to love that person like they love you. And so that's a critical piece is in Little Women, Joe and her mom have a conversation And she says, well, do you love Lauren? And do you love him? And she's like, I love being loved by him. We also must love, not just be loved. I really believe that the more that we can learn to have a positive relationship with ourselves and love ourselves, Elder Holland, I think it was last general, or like in the last few general conferences, he talked about like, do you like your own company? Can you enjoy yourself when you're in the room just by yourself? And I think that that is a huge part of all of this is learning to be at peace with and accept ourselves because a lot of times people are looking for someone else to accept them so that they feel like they have license to accept themselves. And so people are willing to take whoever comes along just so that they can feel accepted and good enough. But when we realize that God loves us and God accepts us and we learn to love ourselves as his child, we don't need someone else's acceptance to feel okay in the world. Not that we don't want it. I th- you know, we're designed to have companionship and want to have love. And so I'm not trying to say do away with that. I just think that we can, I know that we can make healthier decisions when we've learned to love ourselves. Yes, absolutely. And I think that that's, I feel like that's the piece that sometimes is missing what really matters there is that we value ourselves and sometimes we valued something more than we valued our own, our own selves and our identity as a child of God and how important that is to God. That's powerful. So besides identity, knowing who you are, what other principles govern your experience? What do you mean by govern my experience? Can you tell like explain that a little more? For example, when you go on a date, a governing principle might be, I don't just go on dates to go on dates. Do you know what that I mean? is one of my governing principles. Yeah, governing <laughs> principles like I actually go on dates with people I want to go on dates with. That might be a governing principle. Or it might be, oh, I go on dates with anyone who asks me. That could be a completely opposite kind of a situation. But I would say that that's a governing principle. Maybe that's not the right question, but that's what I'm thinking. Okay, so one of the things that I am thinking of right now, which is most likely an unpopular opinion. I'm going to share that. In my opinion, one of the biggest mistakes that people make is that they jump into their physical relationship way too early. I understand that we all want to engage in a physical relationship with someone and that kissing is fantastic. Like it's great, right? Holding someone's hand is great. Cuddling is great. It's all great. And we like to feel that connection with someone. We like to feel the acceptance that a lot of times we feel from doing those things. But having been married, I understand at a very deep level that marriage is a lot more than, than your physical relationship. And I just really believe that when we have a solid friendship foundation, then that physical relationship is enhanced in a way that it can't be if you don't have that friendship foundation. I feel like our world is like just rampant with like the desire and the opportunities to satisfy your appetites. And I believe that that happens way too often when it comes to dating. And people think that it's harmless and it's not a big deal. And I realize people might, there may be people listening that think I'm just some little prude and whatever, but that's fine because I have experience from my past that has taught me why this is something that we need to be careful with. This is something that needs to be honored. And it is something that God gave us to bring us joy. 
and connection, but it's not just something to throw around and use on Friday night because you're bored. But people do that. And in our culture of Latter-day Saints, I just feel like it's too common to like, let's just have a Nikmo. I don't do that. I think it's foolish. I think it is lacking a lot of wisdom and perspective. I feel like that sounded very harsh. I don't mean this as like a judgmental thing to beat people with. I mean it as like, do you understand what you're doing? Do you understand what you're using? And people's feelings just get wrapped up. And sometimes people get married because they found a great makeout partner, not because they found someone who helps them be a better disciple of Jesus Christ, not because they found someone that they can trust, not because they found someone that, um, you know, believes in them and encourages them or because they found a healthy relationship. It just, it scares me. I just think it's such a slippery slope and we have to be careful how we use that. So I, I just, whenever I talk to single people, I'm like, do yourself a favor and hold off as long as you can on getting physical with this person you're interested in. It will only benefit you. I remember one of the effects of getting too physical too early was that there was an added pressure. Yeah. And I really think that pressure too early on can really wreck a potentially great relationship. But because it creates this feeling of, wait, do I really like him or her this much enough to be physically sharing myself this much with this person? And, and then it, it brings up questions that should just be like, oh, we're just enjoying getting to, to know each other. It pushes that those questions so much in earlier, earlier into the relationship and therefore create undue pressure in my mind as well. That's what I think that's one of the results that I saw. And it was a pattern that repeated itself. It was, oh, we kissed too early. <laughs> and therefore we're now I feel like I have to make a decision where if I wouldn't have done that initially, I could have just continued to get to know the person and see if I really liked them. Right. So, well, and I think another pressure that can come with that is like, I mean, I think we all know that what comes after kissing. And so like, you can only go so long and live within the lines that we've been taught to live in. And so if you, if you do it too soon, if you are getting too physical, too fast, then it's like, well, we've got to hurry up and make a decision before we make a big mistake. And that should not ever be like, it's just, you know what I'm saying? Oh, I know. You, I it's know. not helpful. So I just, anyways, I feel so strongly about that. Thanks for sharing that. I feel like that's really important to talk about. And I'm grateful that that's one of those guiding principles or governing principles that you're trying to uphold and understand that it's more than our physical relationship, which is so true. How would you guide others to get clear on their principles so that they can be wise in their dating relationships? In Young Women's, many of us created the list about our future husband. And that, for some people, is their guiding principle. It's like this list that they made about what he's going to be like. And the approach I'm going to take about the list is that it is great that you want someone who has a testimony. That's fantastic. What does that mean? Because there are literally millions of people across the whole earth that would tell you that they have a testimony but everyone lives it in a different way. So what does it look like for them? And not, not to be used as, again, like a way to judge and place ourselves above or below people. But when you are choosing someone to be with, you are choosing a parent of your children, potentially. You are choosing someone that you are going to 
be with every day, spend every Christmas with, live in the same house with, like your your career future, your hobby future, your relationship future, like relationships with everyone in your life is greatly impacted by this person that you choose. So, you know, some people, they, they end up with someone that doesn't value spending time with family. And so that person then becomes removed from maybe a close relationship they once had. Or sometimes people marry someone that had a testimony, but it's not manifest in the same way as theirs was. And so um, there's a discrepancy between the way that that's going to be lived or observed. And I want to be like careful in saying this, because again, I'm not saying this needs to be, I don't want it to be taken in the wrong way, but maybe using the example of... I was talking to a friend recently about the dating world and how like there are lots of Christians throughout the globe and um, they may meet someone who says they are Christian like me and like, well, great. We're both Christians, but Catholicism is not the same as being a member of the church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. We, we live by different principles. We both believe in and love Jesus, but the way that we live that is very different. And so within the context of your own particular religion, that is true as well in a lesser sense usually. But I think being able to define what those things look like for you is really important. I want someone who's thoughtful. Well, what does thoughtful even mean? Because we all have a different definition of what is thoughtful to us. So there you go. I think that that is one thing people can do. Yeah, I absolutely agree. It is such, I understand why people are like, just make a good choice, right? And this is the most important choice you make. It's true. It's it is true really important. In like more deep ways than people can even understand. Yeah. Like it's, they were serious. All the things they said, like, like they, it was for real. It was for real. And dating can be kind of just a ridiculously difficult experience. And how do you encourage friends in whatever age range? These can be my friends who are 40 and above, my friends who are in their 30s, my friends who are in their 50s, their 60s, their 70s, uh, to stay engaged when they've been doing this for just decades. Heavenly Father has a plan for every single one of us. And I believe his plan is that there are specifics and there's generalities and that he provides opportunities for us over and over and over again. And some opportunities he does not provide to us on purpose. And um, some people will have the opportunity to marry that they turn down numerous times and others may never really have an opportunity where they feel that that's what they should do. And so in light of that, I feel like, to me, it's not so much about being engaged with dating as it is being engaged with the plan that God has for you and being able to find joy in that right now. I think that becoming the best version of you is the best thing you can do to find joy right now and to be in a good position to welcome a dating opportunity. But when people are just like sitting around waiting for someone or woe is me, like who's ever going to want me or whatever. It's, it's no good. <laughs> so I get like not feeling super engaged. And I guess like right now in my life, I don't go on a lot of dates. Um, I'm not in a, like a social setting where that's really a big opportunity for me right now because of my age and being a single mom, it's just, there's not where I'm at. There's not a lot of opportunity for that. Am I always open to the idea? Yes, I am. And so I feel like working on your heart so that your heart is in a place of trust instead of a place of hurt. I think that's the best thing you can do, but I don't think being engaged in dating necessarily means that you need to be 
going on dates all the time. If you, if you want to get married someday, I think just let your heart be open, but find joy right now until that opportunity presents itself, but don't let it be the end all be all. And if somebody do, does feel like their plate, their heart is in a place of hurt rather than trust, how would you advise them? What kind of hurt would you say? Like a, a place of hurt? Maybe that they feel like they just are done with dating. They feel like they've been burned too much by the experience, that it's really not for them, that they're in maybe a place of feeling that it's just, it's painful to keep going in that path without just kind of shutting the door on the hope. I would ask them, does it matter to you to have that option? Like, do you want to have that option to have to be with someone someday? And if the answer is yes, I do want to have that someday, but right now I just feel so hurt. When we're hurt, it's important that we be willing to nurse those wounds with the proper medication and care. So if I was riding my bike and I fell off and skinned my knee, the best thing for me to do would be go inside and wash it up, put some alcohol on it or <laughs> hydrogen peroxide. What do you put? I don't remember. I haven't scraped my knee for a while. <laughs> okay. And then put a Band-Aid on it, right? That would be the best thing that I could do. Could I make my scrape heal? No, I don't have, I don't literally don't have the physical ability or capability to cause my body to heal, but can I do things to encourage it to heal? Yes, I can, but God is the healer. And so when we're in a place of hurt, the best thing we can do is do all that we know how to, to take care of our wound. And trust that he's over time, that wound will heal through his mercy. But if I were to choose not to go in the house and maybe even pick up some dirt and then go cut some raw chicken and then rub my hand all over my (laughs) scrape, I'm really not helping myself out, you know? So, and I feel like we emotionally and mentally do that to ourselves sometimes where we have so much social media and we can be connected to to a person that we're dating and then suddenly we're broken hearted and the relationship didn't work out. How do you properly create distance and healthy, a healthy boundary so that that person you can actually heal? It's a good question. (laughs) I think that a lot of times we know what we need to do inside of ourselves. We just don't want to do it. And we're not willing to use the self-control to do those things. And sometimes because we're hurt, I've done this, you, you act out instead of, instead of acting with grace, taking things gracefully and lovingly. I had dated someone that I was real excited about and he ended up breaking up with me. We, we parted ways and people that loved me and were trying to help me feel better. Like, well, he's just an idiot. He just doesn't know. Like he, I can't believe he didn't want to be with you. And I, I really don't care for comments like that. I mean, part of you is like, yeah, he is, he's dumb. But then the other part of me is like, wow, that is lacking a lot of integrity, isn't it? I say, I love and care about this person, but because he doesn't like what I like, he doesn't want what I want. Now he's stupid. That's not very fair. So I think that as we, again, as we learn that God loves us, then we can extend that love to other people in a better way. And I, I want to be better at it than I am. But I, I think that it's important for us to, to choose to believe what God would believe instead of what our knee-jerk reaction wants to believe, like he's stupid because he didn't want to be with me. What a mature attitude to take a different path and say, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to choose to do this differently. How have you processed kind of the negative experiences and what tools have you used to help yourself navigate that? The things that I experienced being married and then going through divorce for me were very deep and, and traumatic in a lot of ways. And 
painful and scarring. I just felt like, okay, if it is real, that God is real and he loves me and he promised me that my my brother Jesus Christ would be able to heal me through his atonement, if that's real and I believe it's real, then there has to be a way. And I have felt for myself that that way is not just a one and done, but that healing takes time and it takes effort. President Nelson, I love when he said the Lord loves effort. And I have found a lot of healing and help through other people and the knowledge and education and wisdom that others have to share. And what drives me to want to find those things is that hope and belief that that there are things that have that healing power for me. And all truth comes from God. So I believe that every time I find true things through whoever, like that's a gift from him that helps me heal. And I honestly believe that I will, that it's highly likely that I will be healing until I die from this. But I've made a lot of progress and I just think there's lots of layers. So I don't know if that answers your question. I love it. It's great. Shay, thank you so much. Is there anything I didn't ask you that you want to say? I, I always feel like I have so much to say on this topic. But number one, in my opinion, it's better to be single and alone and happy than unhappily married. That's not me saying everyone go get a divorce that's not happy. That's not what I'm talking about. What I'm talking about is we should never make a decision to get married on this idea that I will be happier when I am married and I don't want to be alone. And therefore I'm going to take this, excuse me, I'm going to take this opportunity so that I don't have to be alone. Because again, that goes back to the whole, we're not seeing that we have a lot of things to do here. We have a lot of roles and missions to fulfill and opportunities God wants to give us that are aside from being in a relationship. I hope that comes out the right way because I'm not wanting to downplay or dismiss like the purpose and the beauty of marriage and, and companionship. That is God's plan. Again, but I think that it's one of those things that the adversary can use against us if we're not looking at it in, in the right way. I was talking to a college student recently who was dating someone that they were interested in. And I said, okay, tell me this. Have you met a guy? That, so I was talking to a man, a young man. Have you met a guy this semester that you think is cool? That like you want to be friends with and you think they're really cool? Yeah, I met so-and-so. Well, awesome. Like, why do you think that he's cool? And so he told me why he was cool. And I was like, cool. He sounds like a good guy. If tomorrow I told you that you had to choose a roommate that you would live with for the rest of your life, you're going to actually just live with a roommate. It has to be someone you met this semester in the last six weeks. It has to be someone new. Would you feel confident enough to choose this guy to be your roommate for the rest of your life? And he was like, no. And I'm like, okay. So why then do you feel that you have got to determine whether or not this girl you met six weeks ago, if you're going to marry her? And he just started laughing. And I'm like, I know. I was like, we all do it. But it is really dumb when you think about it in that context. We just apply so much pressure and it's just not in our favor. Decisions made in the light are decisions that will probably make us feel better in the long run. Shed as much light as you can on the subject matter so that you can really see what's going on. Because I had experiences and I've had experiences where I revealed my true self to people and it wasn't attractive and it wasn't something they really wanted. And they left at that point. And I think it was in their best interest to not continue to pursue the relationship. But I think it is interesting once you are in a marriage 
that you're like, okay, this is what we get. We're, we're now moving ahead with the flaws that this person has. And we're going to, we're going to work how to, we're going to learn how to work with this. And there is something beautiful about that, but it's best made when you really know what, hopefully as best as you can, what you're stepping into. What is the one thing you want more people who are dating to know? I think the absolute worst thing that you can do is try to convince someone that they want you because you're already wanted and loved by God. And so this goes back to the whole, when you know that you are his child and he loves you, then you know that you don't have any reason to try and make someone want to be with you. And so if someone has chosen to end a relationship with you or walk out of your life, you have to believe that it was in both of your best interest. And what do you do if a person feels like they are, that they do have some weakness that's really hindering their capacity to move forward in a relationship like that? How would you advise them? Like if you feel like, oh, wow, I am an irritable person and I do get like bothered over things that probably are not worth getting bothered over. How do I work on that so that that doesn't disqualify me from being loved by somebody. I know that sounds like maybe flawed thinking because in the reality it is, but how do we work on things that we know might make us a less attractive person? Um, does that make sense? Yeah, and I, but I think, yes, it does. I think that people, I, I get afraid sometimes of showing my whole true self. That's a scary thing because we all have parts of ourselves we're not proud of and parts of ourselves that we know need to change and be different. Um, but I think that we should not have fear-based motivation to change. So, mm. you know, I dated someone that I didn't feel that we were lining up on things that we needed to for me to feel that that was a relationship I wanted to choose into. And this person said to me, well, I can be anything that you want me to be. And yeah, looking back on that, I'm just like, oh my goodness. Oh my goodness. Like you should, we should never be reinventing ourselves so that someone will like us ever because we will end up resenting ourselves or them and they're going to, and like, it's just going to be a train wreck. And I think that everything for me goes back to trust in God. Like we have to not live in this fear that no one's going to want us because we struggle with mental illness or with our weight or with our patience or with being a good listener or whatever it is. Like if we are living in a place of fear, we are not inviting the spirit of love into our lives. Mm -hmm.